Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 verse 14. This is the Essential Bible Studies Podcast. My name is Jesse Adair. And my name is Tim Young. And we're really happy to have Jesse back here with us again. Jesse, you were here with us for an earlier podcast where we talked about Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the curse on the serpent, which involves this prophecy, this promise of a seed of a woman to come. And we want to kind of follow up with that and talk about the virgin birth, the aspects about this special birth of Jesus Christ in Genesis 3, verse 15. You want to start us off there? Yeah. And one of the things which we'll come away with today, we hope God willing, is some of the components of this topic, which we'll discuss, is you'll have this great sense of humility, this great sense of God's involvement, and really that God's concerned with his creation Mm. and the hope that he wants to extend in salvation. Yeah, good point. And this really comes out in the very early pages of the Bible. And Genesis chapter 3 sort of sets the trajectory of one of the core themes of the scriptures is how God will actually provide a way of salvation. Right. So take, for example, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, there is a conflict which has arisen And sin has now entered into the earth, and the creation, which was once very good, is anything but. And God is going to speak to the serpent who was involved with Eve, and he says in verse 15 of Genesis 3, that I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, there is an idea that God is going to provide something down in the future. So it would be apt to say that verse 15 is a prophecy. Yeah. And it's going to be God's doing. I will do this. Yeah. I will definitely do this. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And it sort of seems like an odd thing to say that God is going to bring about a conflict. Mm. Like God is going to bring about uh, an enmity, as it were. The idea there is sort of like a struggle. Yeah. And if there's a struggle, it has to be two sides. And it's between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, at the tail end of this verse, what is promised is almost as it were, like, would you say it's kind of like a climax? There would have to be a climax of this conflict. Is the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head, but also the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of this seed. And this is kind of helpful because it kind of gives us an idea that right here in Genesis 3, early chapters of Genesis, that when the seed of the woman comes, there will be like a dual aspect of who this man might be. Mm. It gives a foreshadowing. We don't get all the details here, and that's fine because it's inviting us to find out. Right. But we know for sure that when this seed does come, that we should see two aspects of him. What do you mean by two aspects? Well, because we do know the whole end of the story. I mean, certainly <laughs> for Adam and Eve, they didn't. Yeah. They they were there living what was happening there in the garden. But for us, we would safely say that we'll find that these two aspects will be that Christ would be both one, the 
son of God. Yeah. And two, the son of man. Yeah. I think it's interesting that later on when Eve does have a child, she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Like she was expecting something special, but it wasn't to be that child. It was to be a child in the future. That would be a special child to come, to be the seed of the woman, to overcome sin. That's a good point. And it's one of those times in scriptures where the characters reveal to us their mindset, Mm -hmm. what was going on in their mind. And that certainly is what Eve thought. Yeah. And sadly, as we know the story with that child, Cain, it didn't turn out that way. No. So if we have this sort of idea, sort of our starting point here in Genesis chapter 3, in the book of Isaiah, there's a few passages which pick up this idea of not that a seed would come, and it wouldn't use the word seed, but how would the seed be born? So who would be his father? Who would be his mother? Mm. So take, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7, we're in the time of the kings of Israel and kings of Judah. And there's this prophecy which is going to be uttered through the prophet Isaiah. And it's going to be a special prophecy because it would really involve the hope of a Messiah. And that really was a central tenet of the faith of Israel, that a Messiah would come. Right, a savior. So who's on the throne at this time? Well, there's this King Ahaz, and he's by no means a good king. (laughs) By no means. Understatement. (laughs) Understatement. He's got lots of faults. And in verse 12 of Isaiah 7, to give us a tenor of his sort of faith or lack, I suppose, It says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And in this sort of hypocritical way, he sort of puts himself out there that he says, I would only do things which are righteous. And uh, we know from his his history that this really was a sort of a hypocritical way to, to feign righteousness. Yeah. And he was like a lot of the kings who sat on the thrones of both Israel and even still in the on the thrones of Judah. But this causes then the Lord's words through Isaiah in verse 13 of Isaiah 7. is well, hear ye now, house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? And in verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so I suppose, like, firstly, you should consider that the kings of Israel and kings of Judah, they were not effective enough to live a life that would bring forth a Messiah. Right. Like, none of them would give birth, or father, I should say, the Messiah. Right. And that's what we expect, because as you mentioned in Genesis 3, it's God will be involved. He Mm -hmm. will. I will. And so... It says that God himself is going to give you a sign. I'm going to do something. Right. And so the Lord would be involved. And who else would be involved with the Lord? It would be a virgin. So you have these sort of like two parties that would be involved. One would be God himself. And one would be a woman who would be a virgin. And if we want to sort of put a, maybe a category on them, well, God He's going to provide the son with this woman who would be a virgin. So therefore, the product or the Messiah or the man who would come would be both son of God and son of man. And it had to be that way. 
And what would be his name, I suppose? His name would be Emmanuel. His name would be Emmanuel. That's right. So I think that's very instructive in itself, just the very name. Because if you have a margin, you can look into it and it tells us what that name means. It means God with us, which is a very special term. Now, I don't think we should misunderstand that term. It doesn't mean that physically or literally God came through this birth. It really means in the sense that God is for us. He's not against us. Right? There's a passage in Romans chapter 8 that says, if God be for us, who can be against us? So it's that kind of sense that really to bring about this salvation, God is the only one who could do it. He had to intervene. He had to bring this Savior, especially through these means. Now, this verse is actually quoted in the New Testament. That's one of the reasons why we know that this word virgin is truly the right word. It's in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. Because some people say, well, that just means maiden. You know, it doesn't mean a, a virgin. It's just a young woman. Well, it really means the idea of any young woman before marriage. So it's an unmarried woman who in those days would be a virgin because she had no husband. It's not like these days where you really don't know with so much fornication going on. But the aspect here, this verse is quoted in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In this context, this is when the angel comes to Joseph. He has heard that Mary is with child and He suspects the worst, that she had it uh, out of wedlock. But the angel comes to him and says, don't worry, Joseph. Mary is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, the angel tells him in verse 20. And it's in verse 21 that the angel gives the meaning of this name. She will bear a son, the virgin will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's interesting. The prophecy really says his name shall be called Emmanuel. But when it comes to it, his name is actually Jesus, which means Yah's salvation, right? The Lord is salvation. And names are really meant to portray just meanings or purposes. So there's many names by which Jesus would be referred to as or called or the purposes that he would have through his life. But we're given the definition of what he came for, for he will save his people from their sins. That's important, isn't it? His people, he had to be associated with men and women. So he had to be born of a woman, be the same flesh and blood as we are. And he would save them from their sins, which is interesting, not his sins, their sins, which intimates that he would be without sin in order to be able to do this. And furthermore, he had to be able to sin. Right, yeah. We know that. The Bible speaks that, that he was able to sin, but he did not. And Joseph, when you look at his lineage, had there been a monarchy in the time of when Joseph was living, he was the rightful heir to that very throne. Right. So it's sort of fitting that when Matthew quotes from Isaiah— And the context of that Isaiah 7 passage is that there is this king, he's not faithful, Joseph now has an opportunity that though he's not literally a king, he was sort of a a kingly heir, he has an opportunity to, to be faithful, to take what God is saying, 
that your wife-to-be, who is showing signs of being pregnant already, you have to believe where this child has come from. That would have taken immense faith on the part of Joseph that he would have had to actually believe that it wasn't just a child, like you said, about fornication, but it would have been of God's provision. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of related to another passage similar in Isaiah. So it's not too far from Isaiah 7, but this one is in Isaiah 9. Yeah, Isaiah has a lot of these great passages. (laughs) Yeah, does it ever. And it really does emphasize the provision of God, that God would be with his people Mm. and save them from the ultimate enemy, and that would be sin. So in Isaiah 9, there's one of these lovely promises that God was going to provide this Messiah of whom he spoke of in the early chapters of Genesis and then Isaiah 7. And here in Isaiah 9, it says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And right there you see these sort of like two components of whoever this Messiah was going to be, that this child would have to be born. And that would be that it would have to be the son of man component or it would have to come from a woman. Right, born of a woman. Yep, component. The seed of the woman. Seed yeah. of the woman. And furthermore, this son would be given. Mm. And that would be like God's gift. That's he, interesting. He yeah. would be the provider of this son. He would be directly involved in this son. And that's kind of important because it really emphasizes for us how we can better appreciate just who Jesus was when he came to this earth, when he was born of Mary and God provided this Messiah, that these two aspects, which we'll delve into, is the Son of Man and Son of God, they did have different components to them, which allows us to come to a more fuller understanding of just who Jesus actually was. Right. So these two aspects, you're saying the Son of God aspect and the Son of Man aspect. That's right. Were crucial, and that's why he had to be born of a virgin. Yep. Right. I take, for example, further in verse 6, it says about this child being born and the son being given, that the government shall be upon his shoulder. So this would be a tremendous responsibility. You would have to make mm. decisions. Yeah. There's a burden put upon him. And furthermore, his name is indicative of some of his character traits that he would possess, that he would be wonderful. He would provide counsel. He would be mighty. He would have a component where he'd be fatherly or he would be looking for things which are everlasting. He would be peaceful. So that's not what the verse exactly says, but those are the quality and character traits which Jesus would possess. Because in order to be called something, yeah, you know, kind or generous, he first should be demonstrating those character traits. Right. Yeah. It's a name that he shall be called. It's interesting that it's the verbs in there, unto us a son is born. It's like present, but it's a prophecy, but it talks in that language that because it's of God, it's a sure thing. His son is born, even though he would be in the future. But his name shall be called these things. So that is a future aspect of the role of Jesus Christ when he would be born, right? Like you were saying. Wonderful aspects, you know, Emmanuel is one of those names, but here is also some more names. I guess one of the things that people kind of hone in on is, is his name shall be called the Mighty God. But really, that's people often had the name of God in their names, you know, like Samuel or, or those kind of things. That word L is the word God in there, it means a herd of God. 
So being mighty from God or of God means he was the son of God. He had that power given to him to be these things, that name, right? So there's another one in Isaiah chapter 49. I I never thought about that before, but when you said to us a son is given, that given aspect is given from God and that he would intervene and give that. I was thinking of this passage in Isaiah 49 and how it relates to the virgin birth and how God gave this son. Starting at verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. This is a a messianic prophecy. Some might read this and say, is Isaiah speaking about himself? Or some might read it and say, maybe he's speaking about Israel. But I think if you read the chapter and how it's quoted in the New Testament and how the wording is used, you can see it's messianic. It's a future prophecy about Jesus Christ. If you think about this in the terms of the virgin birth, it's interesting. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, So there, again, is the seed of the woman aspect, born of a woman, the son of man. He named my name. So we've seen that. He's given the name Jesus and also this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. But the very act of God, why did he have to do this? He was shaping this special person to be polished, to have this mouth, this like a sharp sword. It says, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. So there's a special thing about the birth of Jesus Christ, which made him different from you and I, that he was born of God, but he had this special kind of sense that God worked with him and gave him this special spiritual ability. Yet on the other hand, he was born of a woman, and therefore his nature was of a woman. Now this idea of overshadowing, he was in the shadow of of his hand is an echo to the actual birth of Jesus Christ. Because when we go to Luke chapter 1, verse 35, this is where it's described for us. This is uh, when the angel came to Mary. It was in this despised place called Nazareth. And it's almost as if that was the place where God hid Jesus, right? It was this despised place. It was nobody really gave a concern about Nazareth and Can any good thing come from Nazareth, was the idea. But when this angel came to Mary and he said, in verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There's that word again, shadow, the overshadowing, the the aspect that the very Spirit of God, the power of God would come upon this virgin, would cause her to conceive in the womb. That's the answer to the question. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So it's not as if there's some sort of aspect that God's coming down and transforming himself into a man, right? It doesn't say that. It says the Spirit of God would come and cause this special creation to happen, a special conception that was not of man. It was of God. And therefore, that's why he is the Son of God. It's not that he has God DNA like he has some nature of God to him. He was fully born of a woman, born of the same flesh and blood as we do. But he was born with this 
don't know, it's the right word, privilege, Jesse, like being the son of God, he had God as his father to instruct him and to make him into this polished arrow that would shoot straight. And then also a responsibility. Because if you're, mm. like take for example, like what we're more familiar with today, like if you're a president's son or a leading politician's son or daughter, yeah. you know, the responsibility that is put on them, um, yeah. the scrutiny that they fall under. So as much as there's qualities of which he would absolutely benefit from the tutelage and, as you say, the polishing of Jesus and God would be his father, that comes with a big responsibility oh, yeah. to uphold the characteristics of your father. Well, that's a scriptural principle. To whom much is given, much is required. Right? So it didn't make it any easier. It made the battle kind of tougher, I think. But it's only through that that Jesus was able to overcome. Because when you talked about the wicked kings of, of Israel, like no man could actually not sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every man has sinned. That's what has happened since time immemorial. So God had to step in. He had to give this sign. He had to have this man born of a virgin so that his own right hand could bring salvation for him. You can't rely on man to do that. It's only from God. And Designing a situation where no man would be able to puff up and say, I was mm. responsible. Oh, yeah. That brought about the Messiah. Because, so yeah. think about where we've come from. We've come from this great prophecy in Genesis 3. It's uh, further alluded to in more detail in passages in Isaiah. And so, you know, if we were designing the situation to actually bring about the birth of the Son of God, who also has these characteristics of the son of man or the, the seed of the woman. We wouldn't design it like this. No. No way. Um, <laughs> so take, for example, like still in Luke chapter one, it gives us some detail of when the time came that this virgin would be selected, as it were, and when the Messiah would be born. So, for example, in verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And as you mentioned, this was one of the last places you would ever select in yeah. Israel. You can't really underscore it enough how looked down upon this region was. And furthermore, look at the absolute dependency of who Gabriel comes to is to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph. And this virgin's name happened to be Mary. So, the situation, you almost have to rub your eyes and say, this is really where the Messiah is going to begin? Like, yeah. this is where the journey of bringing forth? It's very humble beginnings. Absolutely. Yeah. The angel continues and says, Hail thou that are highly favored. So he's speaking to Mary. The Lord is with thee. Ah, there you go. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. <laughs> so how is the Lord going to be with not only Mary, but then like uphold uh, what was meant in that name, Emmanuel? Well, blessed art thou among women. Mm -hmm. And by God being with his people, the blessing is going to be that they have an opportunity to be saved from their sins. Yes, yes. So sure, there would have been a unique blessing for Mary. There's no doubt about it, that she would be involved in bringing about the Messiah. But ultimately, the greatest blessing will be to be saved from sin and therefore from death. So Mary is troubled, and she casts this manner of salutation in her mind. Who, me? Like, I'm the blessed woman? That would have caught her off guard. She would never have thought of that of herself. She would have been of such a humble spirit. 
And so in verse 30 of Luke 1, And the angel said unto her, But fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And again, this is God's involvement. Now, there's a little bit about what Gabriel said would happen. And in verse 31, Behold, Mary, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And so right away, Mary is going to be the mother. There's no doubt that she would be the mother. It's going to be in her womb. Right. But a question would come up, well, who's going to be the father? And that's where in the very next verse, then Gabriel says who this father would be because we've already learned that she was espoused to Joseph, but it's not going to be Joseph. Is that verse 32 of Luke 1, that this son, Jesus, he shall be called great, shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And if, mm. if you notice in the hearing of that verse is that this Jesus will have Almost as it were, two fathers, but neither of them will be Joseph. Okay. So he will be of the line of David. He'll be of the lineage of David. He'll be from the tribe of Judah, and that's important. But in the ultimate sense, Mary will be Jesus's mother, and God will be Jesus's father. So we kind of hearken uh, back to these two son of man, son of God. Well, I see what you're aspects. saying there. So yeah, I- God says he shall be called the son of the most high. So God will be his father, the most high. But then it says later in the chapter, he shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. So that's the son of man aspect through David. Mary was of the lineage of David as well, right? So you have that passed on through there. Son of man, but son of God as well. Two fathers. Okay, I I get what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, it is interesting there. I mean, it's probably more the extension is found in the the fatherhood of David with the line, but in Mm -hmm. its most real sense, it would be God's son working through Mary. And because of this, because of these two aspects, right, of which Jesus would possess when he was born, is verse 33 says, he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. So there, in that verse, it is further perpetuating that this is a special individual. Yeah. This is a very unique son who would be born and who would be given right. by that, God. That goes back to that Isaiah 9 passage, the government shall be upon his shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very important, like you're saying for him to be born of a virgin to get these two titles, son of God and son of man. That's why I think this study is so essential, really, to understand the beginnings of Christ and these two aspects about him. And why are they important? What do they kind of entail? There's a lot to that, but what do you think about that, Jesse? Well, the topics are worth exploring. It's a really good sort of lengthy topic to explore. But if you want to try and distill them down, if someone's a son of man, they're going to have qualities which are of men and women. They're going to have temptation. They have to overcome those temptations. And they're going to learn through overcoming those temptations, things like empathy. Yeah. Because empathy is when you're going through something which others around you have also gone through. Right. And those are so valuable because then that sort of forms your decision-making down the road and and your appreciation for how God's laws and commands are good and they have a personal benefit for us. 
that we don't go down into ways of temptation. We sort of look at it through a prudent lens yeah. and say, I don't want to feel more of those feelings if I can avoid them. And then on the Son of God component, you have this benchmark that is uphold that God is righteous, that his plumb line is perfect. He's God of justice, yes. He's God of justice. And that's good. We actually do well when we know where the boundaries are. Mm. And sometimes they can come across as maybe restrictive. But when you know where safety lies, there's actually a positive component to that. And God is unchanging. So much more to be said about those two, but it's always helpful to kind of at least give us a starting point. And if we think about those two components, which Jesus fulfilled or the aspects of his life, that he was both son of God and son of man, there is some roles that he'll fulfill in the future. So if you take, for example, there's this little section in John chapter five, Jesus is speaking here and he says in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. For verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. And so there's a component here that there's a choice to be made and the dead are going to hear this voice which hearkens to the aspect of Christ that he was the son of God. Now there has to be some sort of righteous, perfect quality to the words that come out of his mouth in the voice that that they hear, doesn't it? Right. He says earlier that the father has given him this power to be able to raise those from the dead. Not that he has any inherent power of himself to do that, but through that title, Son of God, that's, I guess, what it implies. Yeah, and God's word, if that's what he's speaking, is perfect. Mm. And that will be the criteria or the benchmarks for how the dead shall hear that perfect voice of which they can choose to pass from death unto life, and they'll have a great reward. So he is, he's really just sort of the vessel Christ is, that he's fulfilling one component of the Son of God aspect. He's just providing the very words that he was given from his Father. Yeah, that's what he says, yeah. yeah. Like hearkening back to that Isaiah passage that he was sharpened, the quiver was being sharpened. And then furthermore, he goes on, Jesus does, For as the Father had life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he's the son of man. Mm, changes there. Yeah, it does change. And I suppose the question is, okay, why why will Jesus take on the role of executing judgment or therefore a judge? We would more than likely say, us because he's son of God. Right. But it doesn't say that. Yeah. It doesn't say that. But when you look at Jesus as a son of man, it is completely appropriate that he would be the judge and therefore execute judgment because he has overcome every temptation which a man would meet right. and succeeded. Right, yeah. So when you stand before this judge, it shouldn't be a time of sort of trepidation or worry if we look at he will be judging based on things like compassion and mercy 
and understanding what it takes to overcome sin and temptation, but knowing that you have to overcome it. He'll be a perfect judge because he's experienced those things. I think to me, it has that aspect like you were talking before, because he's developed that empathy. I think of a passage in Hebrews that says he is able to have compassion on those who are weak and out of the way, and that makes him a, a really appropriate judge for us because he knows what we've gone through. It's not like he's distant from that, right? So that's the important part of him being the son of man and part of that judgment. But like you're talking about before, God wants somebody on the throne who is righteous and and, uh, knows his ways and judgments and who can represent him to the fullest. So Jesus, because he's son of God and son of man, because of the special birth and everything that he fulfilled in his life, is a perfect mediator between God and men because he has that closeness with God and never having sin and being his son. But he also has that closeness with us because he knows what we've gone through because he's gone through the same thing. Yes, and every role that Jesus has taken up or will take up in the future, he has perfectly fulfilled what has been spoken about him all the way from Genesis, Isaiah, and into Luke and into the Gospels and beyond. He's perfectly fulfilled them and he was able to perfectly fulfill them because of how he was born. That God was his father and his mother was a virgin. He just covers everything you could think of in the Son of Man, humility, and the frailness, all the way up to the Son of God, where you have this elevated role that you are God's only son. And no no individual will be able to point and say, ah, but if you only you know, had my circumstances, or if you only had this circumstance, then you wouldn't have done what you were able to do. Oh, yes. He has had every circumstance you could ever imagine. And so there's a great, perfect plan designed in God's way for his son to be born into this world. And it kind of emphasizes the importance of why Jesus was born of a virgin. Right. Yeah. So that's a great place to end, Jesse. I want to thank you for joining us and really going from Genesis 3 verse 15 and through the prophecies of Isaiah about this virgin birth and then seeing it in Matthew and and Luke come to pass. We really know that it had to be that way and that God has a special plan and purpose. And hopefully our listeners, when they, they read the Bible now and they see that term son of God and son of man, it kind of makes us think and makes us kind of really dig a little deeper into those terms and the importance of them and what they mean. So thanks again for joining us, Jesse. Yeah, my pleasure. We'd like to meet you. Every Tuesday night, we meet online for a Zoom Bible study. Come by and just say hi. It's an informal group discussion format where everybody is encouraged to ask questions and share their perspectives on the scriptures. I think you'll really like it. It happens every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To get the Zoom meeting link, go to our website at www.essentialbiblestudies.org and fill out the form. The Essential Bible Studies podcast is brought to you by the Book Road Christadelphian Ecclesia, located in the countryside of lovely Ancaster, Ontario, Canada. Until next time, my dear friends, may God help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.